0: Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Sue Watman, Roberta Thompson, and Catherine Main, all from Griffith University on the beautiful Gold Coast of Australia. Um, today, we are discussing the article they co-wrote uh, titled "The Recontextualization of Youth Well-Being in Australian Schools." It was just pub- uh, it was published in 2019 in the Health Education Journal. Um, I'll link to the full site of the article in the show notes and. Um, Welcome. Thanks for thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you.
2: It's great to be here. i here. Thank you.
0: So we have all of the authors on on the podcast today. So we're going to go kind of in and out of who uh, who's going to answer what questions, and hopefully get into uh, the the deeper parts of this uh, uh, paper. But. Uh, let me uh, start off with Catherine. In the in the article, you start off by talking about the term well-being, and you listed this in the introduction. There's a ton of different definitions of it, um, and it's interpreted through international and Australian organizations differently. So can you give us an overview of the concept of well-being and the implications that di- uh, the different definitions of well-being have in youth's education?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, well-being as a construct has a really long history, and it's a very complex construct. We have its history back from um, 1948, where we had the World Health Organization defying it um, really simply as a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being. And that um, definition has actually increased and become more broad as different disciplines have taken on their own slant of what that actually means, and it does come from now, our definition of wellbeing comes from a number of very different um, disciplines. So in disciplines of health, for example, they focus very much on physical wellbeing and the absence of sickness and illness and disease. Uh, in the uh, psychology, they look at mental health and health and wellbeing. And then we have the popular culture definitions of wellbeing that look at beauty and um, uh, those sorts of areas of wellbeing. Um, So and and lifestyle. And then we have a look also then at currently now the World Health Organization defines wellbeing as a state in which every individual realizes his or her potential. So we're moving from really objective types of definitions to more subjective, uh, a combination with more subjective types of um, elements in it. And so they're looking at them being able to reach their potential, being able to cope with the normal stresses of life, um being able to work productively and fruitfully, and making a contribution to their own communities and the environments in which they live, and also being able to adjust and um, manage the normal stresses of life. And when we look at that uh, in terms of education, the field of education still doesn't have a definitive definition of well-being, and it actually even though within Australia, uh, within the article we talk about the Australian department. Um, talking about well-being as a sustainable state of positive mood and attitude, resilience and satisfaction with self relationships and experiences at school, that's still not universally used across um, Australia. And so each state is actually, you know, twisting that or, or changing that slightly to fit their own um, agendas. Um, for young people, it's really important that we understand what wellbeing actually is or means for us in that setting. And particularly because at this stage of development, they're really looking um, at setting down and solidifying their sense of identity, their attitudes, their their dispositions and their values. And so a lot of what happens during these really key, this really key and critical developmental period actually sets them up for their future. And if we don't focus on wellbeing as an educational imperative, we actually look at having um, a number of gaps in their educational experience. Because when students have a really good sense of wellbeing, they feel connected to schooling, they feel connected to their peers. We have, let's see, less um, absenteeism, we see less mental health issues, we see a whole range of other positive academic outcomes. And so we actually then are setting them up socially, emotionally, and physically for a really positive future.
0: Yeah, and I, it was interesting to see that the definition change from very simple to all of a sudden, you're taking the transfer to the community and that is holistic of well-being. So um, I think that's a good section to to read sure. in depth because there, there is a, a lot of different definitions and how they're interpreted is different. And so Sue, maybe you can talk um, because you you use Bernstein's 1990 model of recontextualization of pedagogic discourse, um, and you talk about how that how that changes. So, can you explain that model and explain how it influences the Australian curriculum? Yeah. So it, it's, it's
1: really it's like a model to think with. So I used Bernstein's model in my own thesis years ago, and uh, took out the 1990, and then he expanded and. And tweaked it again in 1996 and, and again through Pedagogic Rights in, 19, in 2000. And he was publishing and tweaking this model since the late 1980s. And what I, I wanted to give you a little bit of background to it because um, he he published this model after attending a conference in Chile, where he was exposed to thinkers like Freire and Ramsey and Chilean scholars like Christian Cox and some of our other colleagues here, actually, Professor. Carlo Singh, who might people, people know as a Bernstein scholar, Henry Clock, Stephen hymans they recently published an article showing the genealogy of the, that model of um, recontextualisation It's used to show how discourses are delocated and relocated in new places. So the model was like a response to this exposure of ideas about how the marginalised or oppressed groups have their democratic say or exercise their pedagogic rights in. Curriculum decision making. So one of the one of the um, tricks or the assumptions about the model is that, that he said discourse is imaginary. And like Catherine was saying, you've got all of these different fields overlaying um, what they think well-being is about, or what what they focus in or zoom in you know, in well-being. So it, uh, this imaginary discourse then means that it's it's not real. It's not transplantable from one place to another. It's is disassembled and reassembled and put together to fit the purposes of the people in any particular context. So from this perspective then well-being discourses in one uh, context where someone may be really leaning into the psychology side of it and taking it up in a particular primary school with its own unique student community and its own unique demographic it could have a really different um, well-being discourse at another primary school even though their context might, it could be a primary school down the road, but you know, the people who are pulling together um, the discourse are zooming in on different things. So what the model does is kind of show, well, who are all these people? and Where do they sit? And what, what, what are the texts they're privileging? And where are the power and control relations that sort of decide what gets up and what doesn't, what gets focused on and what doesn't? And that's why we thought this model um, in, in, in us bringing our two case studies together as we do in the paper uh, it, it allows people to see like how is it then that these particular these two particular cases ended up with the approach to well-being that they did mm-hmm.
0: so just an off the wall question here based on that figure would you describe them would you describe those levels as filters or as lenses so like as the top international definition goes to the national, goes to the local, goes to all the way down to who is actually being impacted. Do you see those as as similar? Like, are they filters? Like, people are filtering certain parts of that definition and putting it through, or people are looking at different lenses and the color of the lens changes throughout? Well,
1: Vancemine took up Bojie's well, idea of fields. Uh, he took the idea that they're fields and that within fields, you've got rules, you've got agents, you've got actors, and that, and these fields also have boundaries between them. So the top level is a field, the next level is the official field is, is a field. So you, you have your, your primary um, field, international fields like academics, mm-hmm. people producing knowledge, your researchers. You have your official field, which is where the, a lot of these policies that we looked at in this paper are being generated by people employed by government and being endorsed by ministers. You have the pedagogic field where people like like us, like academics, are taking, um, looking at the re- new research that other people are producing and we're creating pedagogic texts and we're creating curriculum and we're creating teacher education. And you also have people making textbooks, all sorts of things, get down to that secondary field where the teachers and the students are working together. and so, so again, think about power and control relations between these fields. Some teachers will, just, even <laughs> some teachers will do their own research. So they, you know, skip back up to the top and they're and they're reading widely about wellbeing. And we we've, we've heard that in our projects where a number of the teachers were really across latest research in wellbeing. And whereas others, they're not. They're going, what's in the curriculum? I'm just going to teach what I'm given from the pedagogic field. And then again, in this model the um community there's this bottom-up push as well the mm-hmm. community parents the students themselves with some agency are also affecting what's going on in the classroom right
0: and i know we talked we're going to talk about that in a little bit about the community aspect um before we get into that can you tell me about the methods you used in the study specifically like how were the two uh programs selected and how did you um
1: design the case studies? Well, we, so we got the two, uh, Catherine and I worked on one case study and Roberto worked on the other. So we thought, all right, this paper can do this cross-sectional review and a really brief content analysis of these Australian, federal, state level wellbeing policy documents. And then we pulled out some findings from our two respective cases around how wellbeing was being recontextualised from these policies and other important texts. So, again, with the view that we wanted to try and map it out using that visual semiotic about how wellbeing is or can be recontextualised in a particular school. So so in Case 31, Catherine and I published before on this in the Unlocking um, Pedagogic Practices of the Titan Learning Centre. And we drew on a a subjective and interpretive paradigm. We used combination of qualitative methods to build the case of the TLC over two years, and and the, the TLC was located in two sites in southeast Queensland. We picked a case study because we thought it, well, it gives us the flexibility to combine these methods like interviews, surveys, observation, documentation. It's both intrinsic because we were focusing in on what makes the TLC unique, and it was also instrumental because we thought we could pull out things that they are doing in this school that other schools might want to know about. So you we know, fulfilled those. Purposes. And ethically, it was really important to us that we had permission from the parents, students, teachers, and the players to have everyone on board with what we were doing. And in that sense, then we had what like 100% participation and permission to be observing what was going on in uh, those TLC classrooms, and about 90% follow-up rate with surveys that we that we administered afterwards. I'd like to hand you to Roberta to talk about case study, too. <laughs>
3: Okay. Um, yes, yeah, so I'll talk about case study two and the this second case is drawn from a much larger project that was based around um, looking at middle school middle school girls' social media use, um, their online safety practices and um a lot about their online well being. So that work started or stemmed from my PhD research, which started just investigating teenage girls' online participation, what was happening for them, discovered that obviously well-being issues, cyberbullying and so on were issues, we need to m- know more about this so this uh, second study uh, followed on from the PhD research. The case study that is um, discussed in the paper is one of the schools that was involved in the bigger project and what was happening at the school at that time, um, they were experiencing, uh, with the middle school girls, are experiencing a lot of cyberbullying problems emotional issues, um, claims of self-harm, suicide ideation and so on. So the wellbeing team there were quite happy to join up with the project because they could see how this particular project was going to enhance or support or build on the wellbeing work that they were already doing around cyber safety. So what happens um, just briefly around the uh, project itself, each school um, nominates groups of kids, um, in this case girls, um, in year seven and eight, they came on board to design self-help resources for other girls their age and cyberbullying intervention. So that was basically what they were doing. And so this ca- particular case study is drawn from um, a classroom situation, um, a couple of classroom situations at this one school, pulled up the um, observations and the focus group data and, um, and packaged that as the case example. Um, in this particular uh, school, the the bullying experiences of the kids, the cyber safety work that was going on in the school and the new reporting processes and so on actually were kind of um, embedded or um, situated around the actual design project that the girls were working on. So this this case study is drawn from that larger study, pulled out, looked at the observational data and the focus group work um, and brought together through purpose
0: of this paper and and I'm interested in hearing more about these these two especially they, they are different but also like if you if you could imagine like Facebook and Instagram are collecting data at the same time as you are probably and understanding how deeply problematic their platforms are for young girls and you know you obviously don't have access to that data but they know this all along And you're doing these projects on the ground and this is happening. So when I was reading that, I was like, wow, they're, you know, these big, huge companies, social media companies are hiding all of this data that just came out this year. They have all this data of how problematic they are. But obviously, school districts and parents know all along how problematic they can be. So I'm wondering if you can kind of break down a little bit more about the two programs you investigated and maybe um, start off with Sue for that. Uh, case study
1: one. Um, yep, I can do that. And um, I'll let like, Catherine explain a bit more about it um, as well. But the, the, the TLC, which, which we thought was really not a great acronym. <laughs> it was a TLC, like Tender Loving Care, but it's the Titans Learning Centre. And the, the students who went to it were uh, recommended by their teachers for basically exhibiting behaviours about such as being really anxious um, or withdrawing from schooling. So they would typically take a group of 12 students at a time in grades three and four, which is, they could have been years, you know, eight, nine or ten years old between grades three and four, um, do a ten week program in an alternative schooling from their normal school. But they weren't, they weren't withdrawn from their normal school. They started the day by going to their normal school, signing on the role, but then the, the TLC bus would come and pick them up and drive them off to their alternative um, school setting. They would have regular classroom time, lunchtime handball sessions, and a program reward excursion to the national handball league club. That was the Titans, which was part of the program. Um, and they um, they also um, had
0: time
1: to finish the day back at their normal school. So they'd be picked up, do the TLC program, then get back on the bus and go back to school in time to be picked up by mum or dad or carer or whoever whoever was, um, was taking them. But yeah, Catherine you talk a bit more about like how we actually looked at this data and what we did with it.
2: Okay, so we worked with the, um, the two centres. Um, Sue predominantly gathered data in one centre and I gathered the data in another centre. And over um, that period we did observations of the types of activities and approaches that the teachers within each of those centres were using to engage the students. And we used an auditing tool called productive pedagogy and we looked at for specific ways that teachers were using things such as um, supportive classroom, envi- building a supportive classroom environment, um, whether they were using higher order thinking strategies whether they were using cooperative strategies, the types of things that they were doing to get an understanding of the outcomes or why this program was actually working, because we had a lot of anecdotal evidence that it was working. And uh, we were there to gather the data around um, some empirical evidence to demonstrate or to clearly show why uh, the program was being so successful in these students actually overcoming and then starting to thrive within their own classroom environment when they went back. ill we, um, we interviewed the relevant stakeholders we did in-depth interviews with the teachers that were involved in the um, the programs we interviewed the Titans players which the Titans players were um, part of a national rugby league um, club that that was that is based on the Gold Coast and so we had those players as well we um, also interviewed the teacher aides that were there and some of the club staff as well. And so this really helped us to um, interpret and provide a, a critical snapshot of the students and the players' experiences within the program so that we actually had this 360 degree understanding of actually what was happening and how everything actually pulled together um, within the program that made a difference and supported these young people there. and. Um, importantly, we actually saw how unique the context of the student, the student demographic within each of those centres, um, bringing in the players as role models that these um, children would look up to and, and very much be very much excited about coming because the players would actually come in and would uh, take some of the activities, so they would take uh, some of the handball sessions, they would also come in and they had some of the A grade players coming in and reading to the the, the students as well. So it was really um, a very integrated uh, program because the, the students actually did their literacy and numeracy as well as um, other activities that were part of the general curriculum and not just focused, it wasn't a sporting program as such, even though they did play handball that was supervised and um, looked after by the, the Titans players. So we were able to gather some really rich data by interviewing you know the students and doing pre and post Surveys with the students around um, their sense of belonging, their attitudes towards school, their attitudes towards peers, and so it was actually quite. Um, there's a lot of data there that we still have a lot to write from and to and to to build on.
0: Sue's nodding her head, she's like, "Yes, there's a lot of data." So, what about uh, what about the second case study with the the teenage girls online?
3: Um, Okay, so I'll I'll talk a little bit more about how the project uh, was run at this specific school. The the process is kind of similar to the Titan Centre, but but a little bit less structured. Um, I had very good um, contacts at the school. This was a school where I had done my PhD research, so I was very lucky to have strong support from the administration at the school. And the administration, um, given understanding that there was this issue with cyberbullying in New Year's seven and eight girls were very happy um, to take the project on board and it was embedded um, directly into the wellbeing department. And the wellbeing department at this particular school was very uh, was fully respons- responsible for developing all of the locally, locally appropriate programs and taking intervention strategies from say government policy documents and um, contextualizing them into the school. So um, the wellbeing department or the lead teacher from that section was the person who was really running the project at the school. The project ran across the entire year level. So it ran across all of the year eight um, cohort and both both boys and girls were involved in the project. However, um, I was only collecting data from girls that had obviously signed of the ethics forms so, uh, what the students were doing, and the, um, the project was set up in five sessions, and these sessions were run for 35 minutes during the well being time slot at the school. The well being time slot was once a week, um, and that session was run by the subject teachers. So, these were not necessarily well being um, specialists, they were classroom teachers um, that have specialization in a subject area. So, these teachers were running the well being workshops. 35 minutes during that time slot once a week. Um, The students came in with a set agenda. So this week we're going to perhaps um, do some research. The next week we're going to explore ideas. The week after that, we're going to um, do some ideation kind of work and then refine that and and so on. So this is kind of the ways in which the project was set up. Um, It was interesting that um, asking the subject teachers to run this particular project Uh, teachers who didn't necessarily have an understanding of design processes um, and or strong background and well-being. Um, Really, a lot of the data speaks very much to how recontextualization actually works from the bottom and pushes back up. So um, that was really the context within which um, the work was um, running. And you'll see that also, if you're going back to the paper, that there was um, a lot of pushback, not only from some teachers, but there was also pushback from the kids throughout the project. All
0: right. So, can you talk to me about the findings of the two cases you you researched in the study? Maybe we can ta- start with the TLC program. Um, like, how how did the translation of policy and well-being influence the SEL intervention? Um.
2: Well, the social emotional learning program that was. Underpinned that pedagogic approach, underpinned the curriculum that they were doing, and with that, what the focus of the the developer or the teacher that had developed the program was looking at is she took um, the five key areas of social emotional learning from the Collaborative for Academic, Social and Emotional Learning, which is internationally recognised as the the key body to go to and to draw from when looking at social emotional. Um, programs, and so they looked at um, building uh, a sense, a a, a really caring and engaging learning environment that built the student's sense of connection to the learning environment. They were looking at ensuring that the instruction was both culturally sensitive and developmentally appropriate. Uh, One of the big uh, problems with social emotional learning programs is that most of the ones that are targeting um, young people or those... In, you know, young or early adolescents. So the, the age group that we're talking about are often um, beefed up versions of early years programs, and they don't—they're not developmentally appropriate. And so this program actually was um, uniquely designed to actually cater for that developmental uh, age group. So that was really a really important criteria for this program. It also focused on the overall school performance. By ensuring that the um, the cognitive, affected and social dimensions of learning work. I think we lost
1: we, Catherine. But I no, I think we lost
0: Catherine. So let me uh, let me move over.
1: Uh,
0: maybe Sue, you can follow up a little bit on that um, on that yeah. screen, on that first that's, program, that's, the TLC program.
1: That's like a fail from like that's not, that's not about campuses that Catherine's on. So someone pulled the slide, I think at like in that's a bit of a worry. If you leave us here, then you'll know that Griffith hasn't paid their power bill. Happened (laughs) Christmas early. Yeah, one of the things. Hopefully, Catherine will come back in and she can she can keep talking about that. But she did she did mention that the teacher wrote a custom program, and so this was about like integrating those principles of social emotional learning into an integrated curriculum where health and physical education was actually one of the five integrated curriculum areas. Now, in this era where health and physical education is being squeezed out of curriculum time in schools in favour of intensive literacy and numeracy instruction, we thought we thought that's something about that, that's something actually key about the fact that health and physical education was retained in this custom program for the students who were, were um, withdrawing from schooling. So, I think also when you listen to like those criteria for social-emotional learnings that come from CASEL, that council, they're very similar to TPSR. So people who, who have an interest in TPSR would be tuning in and going, oh, that sounds like TPSR. And, and you'd be right. They, they have really similar um, characteristics like self-awareness, self-management, um, being, making responsible decisions, transferring those responsible decisions into other settings. And that's, absolutely what the focus was of the TLC. Um, but rather than it being like a level, like the way I understand TPSR is kind of you work your way through the levels and you get to that transfer, it's like the penultimate level of, of, of that program. They kind of flipped it around. They would move back on the board between different emphases over the 10 weeks. And what we tend to see is after about six weeks, the students would start having their penny dropping moments, their aha moments. Um, about oh, I get it now, I get why I'm uh, anxious in this situation or oh, I, I get why that keeps picking on me you know like so that they having they were they were getting that transfer and and teachers back at their home school were starting oh. to say um, that, that, that exactly that that they were now actually demonstrating some of the things they were learning in the TLC back in their regular classroom in their home school. and so, we thought, aha, that is working. And and certainly the, the part that HPE played was important. It let them, it, it's in the curriculum to talk about regulating your emotions and talking about your feelings and articulating um, and how you relate to people. Mm-hmm. So they privileged that in the curriculum time in the custom awesome program.
0: So what about
1: she said the power did go off <laughs> the power went off and the to campus and then her computer shut down it uh, might fade out shortly.
0: <laughs> uh, one of the few times yeah. I've been a guest on anybody else's podcast my, my daughter was inside and she pulled the ethernet cable out of the router and all of a sudden I just was dropped so I feel the pain <laughs> um, but let's uh, maybe maybe we can keep going maybe she'll jump back in um, so Can I, yeah,
3: I just wanted to say something, um, and it came to mind as Sue was talking about those aha moments and with the kids. In the work that I was doing, there was no aha moment between the two groups, like the teachers and the kids. The kids didn't go aha, now I understand what the teachers mean and what it you know, and the teachers didn't go aha, I understand now what the kids don't want to do things the way that we, there was so in in the work that I was doing there was never those aha moments mm. there was still those tensions going on between the two groups um which continues to be um a finding across the work that I'm doing yeah. so I just thought that was kind of,
0: kind so of do the, you that that's the difference in the age group that was that was there or do you feel like that's something about it being across the entire or bigger group? Because I know the TLC program, what I read was a very small um, a very small program comparatively, and that was one of the reasons, when we can talk about that later on, of why it's not around anymore. Um, but versus this 160 student kind of cohort across the whole grade, do you think that that had reason? Or maybe that they're, they didn't spend, like you talked about, a curriculum time being only like thirty-five minutes once once a week, mm-hmm. led by a non non leader of well-being.
3: Yeah, um, I think it's very complex. Perhaps some of those things: um, age group, the timelines, the well-being mentors not being actual well-being. I think I think it's all of those things, but across different schools that I've been to and worked with, and, and where the project's been slightly different there's still those
0: tensions. Yeah. So I don't
3: know, it hmm. needs, needs more risks I
0: would yeah. say. Needs more fundable research, right? Get that funding in. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So let me- let I was me... just
1: going to say that- Oh, sorry. Is there either to the point you made before about like the differences in the um, the sizes of our cases mm. and what happened to the TLC? I thought actually Catherine's got some very good insights about what happens to the TLC, like and why as a program, it's, it, it ran really well for a long time, for about seven years, and then it stopped. And yeah, the um the biggest problem that we had
2: was the changing in the way that the Department of Education in Queensland actually distributed funding, because it, it used to be that the, um that each of the regions had a a designated amount of funding that could be distributed into wellbeing programs and then the schools would ap- apply for that and then promote that and then use that funding um, in that way. And then there was a move for schools to be more self-managed and so the principals were then given the discretionary um, powers to you know, take a piece of that, that funding pie and use it how however they preferred to um, to do that wellbeing um initiative within this school and because the school the program relied on all of the FIBA schools supporting the program regardless of how many students they had in each round of the program it meant that there was a sense that well why should we put money into that program this term because we don't have a student or any students um, benefiting from that that program or you know, over the year we've only had one student in that program and other schools have had five students and so there was a sense of um, inequality around the funding distribution and so because they then made it self-managed we got to the point where we had our final meeting with the school and we had sourced funding from the university to actually try and keep the program going at least for another 12 months so that we could continue with our data and support ways of actually looking try and scale up or replicate the program in other settings and even the host school decided that their funds could be better spent or spent differently that would better benefit more students within their own school context and so it was about um you know shuffling the deck chairs on the titanic in terms of funding moving around and and so it, it it all comes back to that always and it's such a shame
0: yeah and and I, I had similar experiences in the after school programs that I ran in California, that, you know, when when the funding was there, everything was good. And when the funding changes, people are like, wait, why do we have this program? And like, are you able to do this again for free and continue it? Like, um, I think that's that's the shame of you know, those are policy decisions that are made that end up affecting students. Like that's who ends up not having that opportunity is, is that student who really Seemingly benefited from from these programs, but when decisions are made and the tree shakes, they're the they're the kids at the at that lower lowest level of that of that program that end up actually suffering. Oh.
2: It was a shame because we were not, you know, there was no funding that was attributed to us as researchers, and the 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 programs really ran on the shoestring. There was a lot of goodwill and a lot of um, in kinds from from a range of different areas so
0: yeah um let me let me ask you uh, Hmm. about the second program uh on online well-being can you talk to me about the issue of cyberbullying and how that played out i felt like that was really interesting and how that um played out across the school and across the program um
3: okay so the issue of cyberbullying um i can talk about the recent history of cyberbullying Um, really first appeared in the um, Australian press in about 2004, 2005, and has since time been obviously heavily researched. But it really has quite a complicated history um, around uh, definition uh, measuring and so on. So I guess the um, simplest definition for cyberbullying is that it's bullying through technology, and there's intent to harm. However, um, having worked with you know, the teenage girl since about 2010, I can tell you that there's lots of other online behaviors that are problematic for them. Um, they talk about this, they, they call this like toxic behavior or people being mean to me or people, you know, all kinds of other things happening. But they don't describe this in their terms as cyberbullying. It's just someone else doing, you know, this person's being mean to me or not being nice. Um, most often when you hear their stories as an adult, you would say, well, that's actually cyberbullying. But interestingly enough, a lot of the kids, these girls that I've worked with, do not want to actually use that term to describe how they're being treated. Um, and in, I'm sure there's a whole research kind of story that can go there. But the most of the problems that happen in schools are online behavior issues that distress young people, in particular teenage girls 12 to 14, are highly susceptible to emotional distress in relation to online problems and um, cyberbullying. There has been obviously um, an increase around depression, anxiety and stress in relation to these particular things, especially in this age group. There is um, quite a bit of data coming out now, uh, a link to self-harm associated with cyberbullying experiences. And, um, of course, suicide ideation. And there have been a number of um, high-profile cases throughout the world where uh, young teen girls have committed suicide and, you know, they've been heavily cyber-bullied. So the, there is a problem with cyberbullying across the age group, um, sorry, across um, young people, but most particularly in this 12- um, to 14-year-old age group. The other thing I'd like to point out is that you know, the, the governments um, around the world have spent lots and lots of money around intervention programs. There are so many protocols and things that young people are meant to be doing. There's online safety, there's online well-being and so on. However, the problem is still not going away and so suggests that there's something we're missing. Um, just to give you some data um, from Australia recently, the um, Australian um, eSafety Commissioner reported that during the recent lockdowns, during pandemic uh, lockdowns, there was an escalation of at least or close to 40% in cyberbullying reports and so again uh, young people are you know experiencing this problem and we haven't really uh, dealt with it also say that two-thirds of those reports from the eSafety Commission uh, where there were cyberbullying reports were from girls so there's a bit strong indication that cyberbullying is not going away what we're doing is not working and that there's most certainly a gendered angle to the behavior.
0: Yeah. And then you have platforms like Instagram considering starting a under 13 Instagram because they want to bring in more people without the safety, safety barriers there. Um, So, Roberta, how did the girls challenge this regulative discourse of the curriculum design that was in place and how was the well-being curriculum delivered?
3: Um, okay, so I'll start with the wellbeing curriculum being, as I mentioned before, it was delivered 35 minutes once a week by the subject teachers. And each semester or each uh, term at school, the well being department determined what the topic was going to be. So this term that I was working in the school, the topic was cyber safety. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of the kinds of activities um, Around well-being, in terms of school assemblies, um, in-class discussions, and so on, were around cyber, uh, cyber safety and um, online well-being. Um, I guess the point that I want to make about the girls, um, you know, resisting what was happening in the school, or how did they, um, how did they work against that? Most of the girls, or a high percentage of the girls do not want to report cyberbullying, which is the key thing we tell them to do. We can't help you unless you tell us about it. But most of the girls don't want to do that. That is not how they want to manage it. So um, I'll I'll just give you an example um, of one of the situations I observed. Um, The teacher was uh, the girls were designing some kind of intervention around how we can get our friends to help us without talking to teachers. And the teacher overheard the conversation and immediately came in and said to girls, this is ridiculous, this is not how you meant to do it. The school has told you how to do it. The school has a reporting system for it, and the school had just put in place an anonymous reporting system. So you need to go and report that online. And as soon as the teacher walked away, the girls looked at me, rolled their eyes on their head and said, we're not going to use that system. We're not going to be um, considered a snitch. If we report it, everyone in the school will know, and that's what will be considered for the rest of our time here. So they just don't use the stuff, and this is their explanation for it.
0: So interesting. And it's like, it, it makes sense, though. There's so much pressure there of not of being accepted and fitting in. And if you're the yeah. only one using this anonymous, you know, place and then you are the target of cyber billing, then obviously it's gonna go back to, oh, this was the person. So that's interesting. Um, so I'd like to get your responses on like how you think policy and the, these powerful agencies can influence and also can be influenced by programs like the ones we, we've been talking about. Well, look, I think that
1: um... Well, one of the key reasons for writing the paper was to think about and it was to pull together these two case studies concerned with student wellbeing or different, and different aspects of it and different ways that the schools approached it to show how bespoke programs but can come together, so how they can come together. And then that that feeds back to, so we look, tried to map well, what were the policy influences on the way these programs were recontextualised and delivered in these sites. And then we also, importantly, also wanted to show what the bottom-up community-driven concerns were to also shape those programs. And there's lots of examples of how community outrage, particularly over um, youth um, suicide, has gone straight back up to the policy level and, and governments factored really quickly to, to, to introduce new legislation, so it's like some of those reporting, mandatory reporting programs um, Processes in schools now—they're they're all a, a result of governments responding to community outrage over um, particularly high-profile young deaths. And it shows that, that policy, while policy can be slow and policy can take the wheels of policy can turn really slowly, they can turn very quickly too when yeah. when governments actually get that thermometer check from how how outraged community is and what they and they, what they want to see back on to I guess the school's responsibility to, to deal with issues around critical student well being. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: And I guess it depends on what government we're talking about. So some some governments <laughs> are faster <laughs> yes. than no. others. Uh, uh, what do you think? in
1: Queensland they introduced they introduced <laughs> the well being like a new policy in in six weeks. Wow. They they actually wrote it and introduced it in six week
0: wow.
1: in response to a particular um, high-profile case that yeah
0: what do you think roberta
3: um i think there's a there's probably a common tone to um the parts of this discussion that i've contributed to and really for me it's about um acknowledging the tensions between every contextualization and the pushback from the bottom up And I think that um, these two things are really good starting point for um, thinking about how well being agendas, um, policies, resources, and so on can be effectively um, reproduced to um, support young people um, in their day-to-day lives.
0: Catherine?
3: Um,
2: for me, when when we were writing the paper, when we were initially discussing what we would look at, one of the things that I found really important to highlight was that these were programs that were developed from the bottom up within schools where you had teachers and school leaders who recognised a a problem that is more broadly experienced, but was certainly highlighted and, and profoundly challenging within their own context. And they were addressing that, not by buying an off the shelf program, but by actually developing a program that met the needs of the clientele that they had or the students within their own context. And I think that that's a powerful message that that we need to share is that there are opportunities for schools to actually harness the expertise and the um, opportunities within that, that the university and school partnerships are a critical partnership where we can bring in uh, research and critical friends who have knowledge in the field to support those teachers and others who are running these programs to actually make a difference because both of these programs are very very effective um, and had very positive outcomes and I think that it's um it's a lesson to be learned and to be shared
0: yeah absolutely so you finished the article talking about the powerful role that community context plays in the social reproduction of pedagogic discourse and and you talk about this in in the end of the paper so um, I'll go to Sue what what's your big kind of takeaway message here
1: I think um, I think it comes back to that justification of why we wanted to use Bernstein's ideas about recontextualising knowledge and how pedagogic discourse gets relocated and relocated is to say that a lot of people who have been using Bernstein's work in the past and maybe a little bit even recently, they're they're leaving off the bottom. They're leaving off the bottom context and not really looking at the impact. They're always worried about top down policy, official, pedagogic school. okay, that, they're all important, of course they are, but don't leave the bottom off, don't leave the community off, because it's, it is so important, and particularly in the area of well-being, to show the influence of community in shaping curricula and shaping pedagogic decision-making. That's why we tried to draw those three different figures in the uh, in the paper, to zoom in on the bottom of Ben Stein's model, and as well as Keeping it in relation to that more widely used top-down um, look at the way policy influences those fields. So we wanted to generate like a visual semiotic that that people can use in PE teacher education. Please use it. Um, feel free to share it. Don't leave the primary community context off the bottom of the model. That's our that's our real takeaway for there.
0: And, and I've seen, I looked up the article, it's, it's got a lot of traction online, lots of downloads and stuff. And I, and I think that that figure that you have is really powerful to re- turning that around, of going to, and, and I know this is not how you designed it at the bottom, right? But that is how, how it works, really. It's like the bottom level. But I think that's how a lot of people, a lot of policymakers look at that it 's the bottom of the barrel like that's not what we're focused on, which is exactly what we should be focused on is going to those students asking them how they feel what should be done, getting ideas from from the young people who are being affected by these policies in the end um, so I, I thought the the paper was great I think it's a great read um, I'll link to it um, as I as I thank you all for coming on and only being off uh, for like five minutes when the power went out that was a uh, a great comeback well people didn't even realize that you you jumped off there for a second um i i will give sue a a final plug here because i know there's a a big conference coming up a lot of people are very curious about what's happening with ISEP so i'll i'll do a on the record ex- can you explain what's going on with ICEP? and then off the record i'll ask all my other questions that you won't be recorded on
1: No problem. Oh, look. Honestly, I hope that you you will actually get an announcement by our ASEP twenty twenty two official official Twitter channel imminently. And I know I've been hinting at that over the last couple of weeks, but it's just been to do with uh, final tweaks with our website. But we we are launching with a hybrid conference. So I know, uh, and 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 we listen to the news and go, oh no, there's a new variant. (laughs) Moment, wonderful, but. We do we do see the appetite for people to want to try face-to-face conferencing, but we also realistically know that a lot of people will will still only be able to engage online. So we're going with a really robust online um, platform that's going that both face-to-face and online people are going to use for sharing and presenting their papers. So. That way, we will we, we will continue the brave new world of online conferencing for those who can't make it to the Gold Coast, but we are throwing open the welcome mat and the doors to say, please come if you're allowed, <laughs> if you can, come to Australia and attend in person. And I know from talking to lots of people, and we've had double ARE conference on this week as well. We've been talking to lots of people about the um, excitement of hopefully being able to come to the Gold Coast. Yeah. But yes, look, we've got most of our keynotes locked in. We have our magical scholar lecture locked in we have everything actually at the point of of being able to share with you very soon
0: and and i'm assuming in 2022 june middle of june and the gold coast of australia i'm assuming the weather is pretty consistently good considering we're flying all that way yes
1: yeah Uh, look i tweeted a photo this morning of the beach And that's, that's what it will, I can't guarantee it. All right. But that's 90% likely what it's going to look
0: like. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for, for coming on. Um, I'll put the link to the article and to your profile pages on your university pages on, uh, on the show notes there. So, um, and I also want to thank Alba Rodriguez for uh, helping produce the podcast. And that's all we got. Thanks. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So, I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction the master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching so you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes you'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching you're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.